0: This is a Studio Scotch podcast presented by Scotch College, Western Australia. Hi, this is Sam Sterrett. And I'm Steve McLean. And this is The Range Project. Our guest today on The Range Project is an incredibly inspiring young man. Yarlaloo Thomas grew up in Warrilong, a remote Indigenous community 120 kilometres southeast of Port Hedland. He went on to complete his high school studies at scotch under a medalla scholarship followed by a double degree in medicine and medical science at the university of sydney more recently in 2020 yalalu was awarded young australian of the year for his work with the unesco-endorsed life languages project the Pilbara faces project and several other initiatives we caught up with yalalu via zoom from Broome, while on his rural placement and not far off becoming a doctor in this podcast, Yalalu shares stories of growing up in Waralong, his family history, Indigenous health, what inspired him to study medicine, his time at Scotch, the challenges of walking between two worlds, his views on education, mentorship, and his ultimate goal of seeing an Australia with no difference between the life expectancy of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. We bring you Yalalu Thomas. Yalaloo Thomas, uh, welcome to the Range Project. Steve and I are so excited to have you here. You're an old Scotch collegian, and you've gone on to do some amazing things, and and you know, did some amazing things at Scotch. But we've been f- following your career for several years now. Loads of people at Scotch have, and so we're just so excited and privileged um, to be here with you today. So thank you very much for joining us for the podcast.
1: Hi guys, yeah, thanks for having me. It's um, yeah, honour to come on, and I've listened to your podcast a few times now, and yeah, surprised you got to ask me to come along. So yeah, very happy to be here.
2: Cool. Oh, we're very lucky, mate. Yeah, we're very lucky. Listen. Um, so it's a shame you can't be here in the studio with us, but where are you now?
1: Yeah, so I'm currently based in. Uh, yeah, good backdrop, but um, yeah, I'm currently in Broome, um, hence Cable Beach as a background. Um, I'm just currently doing my uh, rural placement up here so based at the hospital um, studying medicine um, so yeah that's why I'm up in, in sunny Broom.
0: Very nice mate and and how so how long are you up there for for, to, for your placement?
1: Yeah so this is a year-long elective um, in my second last year of med school um, and it's something that um, students can apply for um, and I got lucky and um preferencing up here and it's close enough to home near port heaven where i'm from Uh, but it offers you know a lot of interesting medicine up this way as well
0: yeah i can imagine um so is this is this far from where you know your community is and could you could you give us a bit of a sense of um where you are in relation to your community and your family and all that
1: yeah it's funny people ask me um when i moved up here and The best response is just down the road, Um, and it is. It's six (laughs) hours down the road, Um, so it's much closer than the, you know, 20-plus hours I have to get to um, when I was living in Perth. Um, So, yeah, I come from a small community called Warralong, which is um, near Marble Bar, around 120 clicks, sort of southeast of Port Hedland. Um, And, yeah, my family um, all lived there, and I spent a bit of my childhood in there as well. Um, So, yeah, it's good to be close to home.
2: How long did you spend growing up there?
1: Yeah, I spent a few of my younger years in the community um, and then I got to uh, travel around with mum uh, with the work that she did uh, and she was a native title lawyer and so that involved moving around from, um, yeah, this little community of 100 people to um, Jero, Broome, Port Hedland um, and then I spent time over in Queensland in Cairns and um, in the so Gulf of Carpentaria. what doing that? Um, so I think, fun fact about me, is I went to about, um, I think it was eight or nine different schools before I settled down in high school in, in Perth. Um, so yeah, it's just something I was just used to, just packing up and following my ground. Was that unusual for
2: like, people from your community to travel that much? Or were you quite unique in that respect? No,
1: nah, a lot of, um, I think, Indigenous families you know the idea of traveling around and um, it's just a very common thing, you know, just go where. Where where opportunities take you. Um, and I think, you know, it's pretty opening. I think an opening thing for the community was me going down to um, Perth for schooling. Um, and you know, that was something that they'll be impressed by.
2: Um,
0: can I ask, uh the so you're doing this placement at the moment, what are the kind of things um you're getting to see as far as the medicine? What's what's the focus there and um what what what's really been interesting in that regard in terms of the health and the medicine and stuff that you're looking at at the moment?
1: Yeah, so one of my um, sort of key interests in medicine is obviously Indigenous health um, and then proving the state of Indigenous health that it is at the moment around Australia, but particularly in the Pilbara. Um, and I think I really wanted to come to the Kimberley just in terms of the research that's coming out um, in this area um, and some of the protocols that they have, um, which has never been implemented anywhere else in Australia. I think they're quite sort of nation leading in that regard. Um, and I think, yeah, just being here for only three to four months, it is noticeable compared to at home. Um, and I think there's a lot of learnings that I can take just personally um, as, as you know, Indigenous doctor. Um, and there are a lot of Indigenous doctors that have graduated before me. And so spending time around them as um, mentors, um, it is such a, such a great place to learn um, and also learn interesting medicine that's Sort of, um, you know, isolated to tropical areas and tropical medicine. Um, so things like rheumatic fever, which you'd never see in metropolitan areas, or rarely see, um, whereas you know, such a uh, endemic up here and such a big issue. Um, it's just great to have that um, during my studies and have that exposure. Uh,
2: is that what uh, is that cause deafness? Am I correct then? The rheumatic fever.
1: So the rheumatic fever leads to the uh, rheumatic heart disease, um, oh, in which okay. you sort of have yeah issues with. Um, the valves um, and they often become infected um, and it's something caused by a bug um, that's associated with overcrowded living conditions um, and so this is something that I saw a lot over in uh, when I lived in the Gulf of Carpentaria as well um, and I'm not sure a few people watched the I think it was um, the Four Corners um, episode that came out with rheumatic diseases in Indigenous communities um, so it's been something that I've sort of noticed in the background um, growing up and you know diving into the medicine side of things is just a great thing to do this year
2: yeah well we've got we've got a lot to talk to you about um what you're currently doing now but i, I want to talk to you about what inspired you to get into that and at what stage did mm-hmm. you you know consider moving towards medicine how is your upbringing i've heard you talk about <clears throat> some you know seeing some diseases that you that you had seen in that community but you wouldn't see elsewhere and that was a little bit eye-opening for you and things that you saw people dying you Saw you were going to you know many funerals and things like that what what was it was did that kind of contribute towards your decision to go into medicine
1: yeah 100 i think it wasn't until um i got to around year 10 um, where i sort of realized that i wasn't going to you know fill my dreams of being an AFL footballer Uh, and so I thought you know what else should I do Um, and I started thinking about it and I think it was that summer trip home when I was from year 10 to year 11 um, I sort of noticed it a bit more and you get to that age where you, um, you pick up on these things but you know it was just simple things like diabetes and the prevalence of that in in my community and in my you know immediate family compared to those of my peers that I went to school with um, but other things like renal disease. And yeah, like you said, with um, going to funerals, it was just so often that I'd often, yeah, have to miss school to go back home and attend funerals and say goodbye to loved ones. And I think it was a big sacrifice for not only me, but, you know, every other Indigenous kid that goes down for schooling in Perth or away from home. Um and did your friends to, understand
2: to, that? Or was it too, too big a difference for them to really
1: grasp? Yeah. I mean, that was like the most interesting thing about, um You know, Scotch, and it just felt like, you know, a lot of the time, like being a minority in that sense. Um, not only being, you know, indigenous, but having this whole um, issues that, yeah, issues that I have to put up with at home, with you know, saying goodbye to family and being away from them for so long, not having the opportunity to say goodbye. Um, it was a bit eye opening, and I don't think, you know, when I did, you know, have my lows during school, like it's something that I think a lot of boys didn't recognise or understand, and could appreciate. Um, but you know, we did have a good community with the Indigenous boys that did go to school, and I think you know, having that brotherhood essentially was just what really helped us get through those tough times.
0: Can, can I ask, when you like, if we jump back to your Scotch days, um, yeah, what what are your kind of fondest mm-hmm. memories from Scotch? In terms of, and we can get onto maybe some of the things that that you found challenging, um, but but what, when you look back on those moments of scotch what are the things that stand out to you as as sort of i guess powerful moments for you learning wise
1: yeah i guess learning wise was you know first rocking up and realizing that i had to get pulled out of every single class and put in the um more focused groups um and i wasn't quite at the mainstream level um so having extra tutoring sort of every day after school. made me realise, you know, just how far behind I was off the mark. And, you know, something that I guess, you know, mum hinted to me and dad hinted to me is, you know, this is an opportunity for you to get um, not just a good education but a world-class education. Um, So in that sense, you know, it was just, I guess, an important thing for me to keep that in the back of my mind going through the years of school, just making sure I was ticking along. Uh, But it wasn't until, yeah, the 11, year 12, I applied myself and decided, you know, I want to get good marks and get to where I want to be afterwards.
2: There are kind of two ways people can go in that situation. They can go, this is too hard. I've got too much to catch up on and I'm mm-hmm. going to give up and not bother. Why did you kind of take the opposite approach?
1: I think it has to do a lot with the people who, you, who you're who you supported by and who you choose to support you. Um, I think, And who, you know, who is that for you? Times- is that your family? Yeah, it was my family and in particular my mum. There's just so many times where, you know, I'd get frustrated. I would never make it over the mark, never hit my goal. Um, and she always told me, you know, it's it's a marathon going through school and it doesn't matter if you stumble over those hurdles. If you keep your eyes up looking for the finish line, you're going to get there. And I think, you know, it's think you know, persistence is key um, and making sure, you know, not getting down on yourself. Um, if something doesn't go your way that one time, Um, a system about how you respond to that and how you bounce back
0: um is is there anything like on reflection is there anything that you would um you would think schools would need to do differently you know looking back now what what could be done Mm -hmm. better perhaps that wasn't done when you were going through school to you know to make to to make life a bit easier for you know for your boys like you when you arrived here on on a scholarship mm. and and it was you know this massive culture shock have, have you sort of reflected on what what might what we could do better here at Scotch?
1: Yeah, I think um a few things that I sort of noticed when I was going through um as an indigenous, you know, boy, um, and wanting to study medicine is that I didn't really have someone to look up to and a mentor who wasn't in you know, young indigenous male perhaps going through medical school or a doctor um so a lot of the times i just felt like i was in my own boat um and that's something i have noticed a lot more especially with other psa schools as well as scotch is the increased level of mentorship that goes on um, and just to show you know other kids that you you're not the first person to go through and do this and you've got support in um, people who've had that liberty experience um, and so, yeah, I try to get back to Scotch as often as I can. Um, I took a gap year between my studies and did a um, bit of a stint at the boarding house, which was great to you know, get back on the grounds and um, do a bit of tutoring and uh, mentorship with, with the uh, boys that have now I've seen graduate. So, yeah, it's awesome to see that and you know, it just makes me so happy to
0: see. Um, can I just ask, did you, I don't know if you remember, but there was an assembly where... Um, you received leadership honors and, and, um, and, you know, I was chatting to a colleague about it a couple of hours ago, Cara Fugel, who's our director of teaching and learning here now. And she just said it was one of the greatest sort of experiences she's ever seen at assembly because there was a, a, the longest standing ovation she's ever seen for a student. And it it was just, you know, the boys were so pumped, I think for all the things that they heard, you know, read out on your transcript, all the things you'd done at school, what what was that feeling like? Was that was that a great sort of end to school for you?
1: Yeah, it was pretty overwhelming um, because that was the year, and I think the year before that, I sort of introduced a few um, events at Scotch. Um, one of them being the inaugural Indigenous jumper uh, for Indigenous Round during AFL season, um, and being the first PSA school to create a jumper, um, and then also sort of celebrating. Uh, indigenous cultures through NAIDOC week and ramping that up in terms of having an event um, where we sort of combined with the other psa schools to you know celebrate and share what our culture means to us um, but yeah like you said like i got up there and just the last thing i was expecting in terms of you know my whole cohort standing up and applauding me and i think that just reflects a lot of the attitude of the boys around me more than myself and just how supportive they were um, in terms of what i was doing and and the way in which they, you know, responded to that just made me feel <laughs> so happy at the time.
0: Yeah, it's
2: a beautiful thing, absolutely
0: beautiful mm-hmm. thing. So,
2: And did you did you always, this is a bit of a controversial question, but did you always feel supported or did you have some really tricky times?
1: Yeah, look, there were always some times, I think every Indigenous person can say this, that um, there is sometimes conflict and uh, people... Who have interesting um, attitudes towards indigenous culture, Um, but I think the main thing is for us to hold our, you know, head up high in terms of where we come from, who we are. um, What age were you when you
2: first experienced that kind of thing?
1: Um, I noticed it a fair bit. um, I think when I was playing a bit of footy around the place, and I think it's just a community level where you know racial vilification went on um, on the field. Um, It happened to bit that was sort of um, not overt racism, but, you know, hinted at it during school as well. And I think a lot has to do with the response for Indigenous people as well, in terms of ways in which you can educate that person um, in a, like, non-confrontational way. Um, And, yeah, there's a lot of boys who I look back at school and I remember them and thinking, yeah, wow, you've changed so much since the first day I was in Year 8. And the way you respect me and my people when I graduated. Um, so I think it's like a two way path in terms of that. And this is something that I know awesome. a lot of indigenous people shouldn't no. have to put up with, but it's no. something that we just deal with day to day. And did
2: you talk to anyone about it when these things happened? What was, what was your method of understanding? it?
1: Um, I think, you know, in terms of going to an all boys school, the level of testosterone that's filled around the place, um, and the moods that you go through as a young teenage boy is very easy to resort to violence as your option. Um, And, you know, I've seen that happen a few times, but um, I just thought, you know, seeing that and just reflecting on that, you know, what's a different way you can go about it. And I think, yeah, having those chats with people, um, you can really change a whole lot. Um, And yeah, I think it just comes from a lot in terms of me being proud of myself and who I am more than anything. And I just, Keep that you know, close to my heart, um, and when dealing with these matters, it's some sort of reflection on yeah where I've come from, who I am, um, and what this means for you know my family. Um, but yeah, I guess it was just more of a self reflection and thinking before you act was was the main message there.
0: Um. So so likely just to pivot a little bit to sort of some bigger kind of political themes now. Um... Mm. given its reconciliation week and and the theme is be brave make change um there's a lot going on here at scotch at the moment with the reconciliation week and i'm just wondering what what does this mean to you um and and i i guess the second question is this you know the labor government getting in and this whole commitment now to the uluru statement from the heart and and you know do do you feel like there's a real shift seismic shift going on um, you know, politically or, you know, what's your view on that?
1: Yeah, um, so a few things to dissect from that. I think, you know, the theme this year um, in terms of being brave and being sh- making change, um, I guess, you know, that can happen at all levels um, and it's something that, you know, I think Indigenous people do most, most of the time these days with Reconciliation Week, which, which is showing off your culture, being proud of who you are and what you do. Uh, But the other part, I think, from non-Indigenous people is just having that conversation and showing genuine interest in what Reconciliation Week is about and what it means to be living in a country with the oldest living um, culture in the world. Um, I think it reflects both nationally but locally in the sense that um, I think reading up on whose country you are on and, you know, the significance of the history of that area, and one example is, like, you know, at school the design I made was um, in reflection of Lake Claremont, which was Gabo Munup, and I think that was the one thing that a lot of the boys learnt um, when I got up on stage and you know, spoke about the meaning of the design. Um, and, you know, then hearing people come up after me and asking questions is just, you know, that's, that's the being brave sense right there. Um, and, yeah, in terms of making change, I guess the second part of that, we're looking at um, you know recent um, statements from federal government with Uluru, um, the Uluru statement. Um, I think yeah, a lot needs to be done in terms of closing the gap. And my interest specifically being in uh, the medical world, but also education. Um, yeah, I am. I am, um, I am uh, a, a supporter of the of the initiative. Uh, in terms of having a voice from community be expressed in Parliament. Um, And I think, you know, just even having this discussion is just taking those right steps forward in our society. Um, You know, next part of that, if we get to the referendum and how that goes, um, you know, that's for Australia to decide. Um, But a lot of my focus is also stemmed around being the medical aspect in terms of the fact that policy changes does take a lot of time and it's time that, me and my family can't wait for and so you know we sit here and waiting 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 um more and more of my uh, family being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes um renal disease um you know rheumatic heart disease and a lot of this stuff is just preventative um and so for me i think the short term goals um also include ways in which we can empower indigenous communities um and create future indigenous leaders um who can also voice the concerns of the communities. Um, so a lot of stuff I do around with Medala, uh, which is a scholarship company um, that yeah sends kids um, to get uh, education down in Perth um, and other areas. Um, I think it's just so vital to continue that. Um, and yeah, like I said, develop them into young people that they can bring something back to their community. Um, and yeah, I think for that, it's just like this word that, and phrase that my dad told me and which which i do which is that gari, which means walking in two worlds and it's this living in a society um where you are um, able to participate um and 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 be involved in modernized society but also be you know strong with your roots with who you are what you are your language and your old people
0: that takes some real strength though doesn't it to walk to walk that line to to to, ba- to balance those things i imagine to just kind of go into like you know very different uh, cultural environments when you get back to your community and and i imagine mm-hmm. that does it take it does it take time for you to if you've been spending heaps of time in the city or when you get yeah. home are you just like ah oh, great like you just feel I- straight at home
1: yeah i mean the first thing that gets me when i go home is the heat and i just Tend to find myself on the couch for three days just because I can't stand it compared to the Perth, Perth, Perth climate. But um, yeah, I guess one thing that um, I've noticed is it's almost a skill in itself being able to um, act appropriately in you know communities and the way you would act there is very different to you know going to school in Perth. And a few examples, it's just um, you know talking to your elders or. Say example, your teachers. Um, when you go to shake the hand and introduce yourself back at home, if you look in their eye, it's considered to be rude. Um, whereas you know in Western society, it's a lot to do with making eye contact and a firm grasp, uh, which is those polar opposite things. Um, you know, it's th- little things like that to completely different languages. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of boys have to learn by themselves um, and with each other in terms of that code switch. Um, and then it's just about knowing, you know. There's ways in which we act um, at home, which is completely different to in the classroom or anywhere in Perth.
0: Do you think there's a responsibility um, if you're a non-Indigenous person who, you know, to, to, to be able to code switch yourself as well, well when I mean, in Perth, I right? I made the mistake. Like, I, when I was
2: first became a teacher, I, I had this issue and I was telling Indigenous boy off and I was like, look at me while I'm talking to you. And, I, and then mm. obviously that was the you know a complete a totally, thing yeah, to do. I know, but I just didn't know. And um it's just education and understanding, isn't it? On both, yeah, on exactly. both sides, yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And it's just it takes two to work, walk walk that side of things as well in terms of the issues that you have to deal with. Um so I think like having sort of cultural competency programs, which we've seen a lot more of, I've noticed, around workplaces, uh, for people yeah. to know that these things exist. Um it's certainly like a positive reflection, I think, in these past few years that I've noticed.
2: Yeah, traveling, I think for anyone, traveling between multiple worlds or multiple cultures is is where you you start to understand that there is another way of living other than your own. And so, you know, for you, you've you've traveled all around, you come come to Perth after traveling many different places and you understand that people act differently in different ways. But there's probably a lot of people that you were interacting with that had never left their little neighbourhood. It's really hard for yeah. them, I guess, to understand that there are there are different ways. You send someone to Japan, for example, and there's a total different culture there. It's just, it's, mm. it's very foreign. Yeah,
1: because it's funny that you mentioned that because I think like in terms of the boys that I saw made the most progress at Scotch in terms of being open about um, the idea that there's a life that exists <laughs> outside of the suburbs that they live in, um, were the ones that went on those tanzania trips to africa and got a sense of what the world is like <laughs> outside of the comfort zones um and yeah this is something i think i'd love to see in terms of um you know scotch boys or anyone at school for that matter um, it's just experiencing and being open to you know what other lives are like outside of your hometown um and i guess for me it was a lot easier like with my background like i said before just traveling to a different town every year is something that i just had to get used to and to fit into where i was
2: before we move too far away from it you were talking about you had some really good suggestions about closing the gap that wasn't not just related to your role in medicine but also in education and um Mm. community leaders and all all that kind of thing What what are the biggest things that are holding that gap open
1: I think honestly, the main thing that I see at home is just access to education. Um, there's, you know, I'm the first in my community to get a uh, high school certificate, let alone go to uni. Um, and, you know, since my time of graduating, um, you know, what's that been five years? Um, it's, you know, I've seen a few cousins go through and go through the Scotch program and follow my footsteps, which was so um, yeah, amazing to see. Uh, but in that sense, there's only three that did it out of a possible of 100 kids and so i think increasing not only um the opportunities but accessibility to uh getting an education and i think idea so what, in what an needs ideal to happen for, for me, that to occur yeah so in my ideal world i think that having um the facilities um of getting that world-class education back on country is the main thing for indigenous people in remote areas um and our discussions with uh, family at home and situating it in one town in which you can have elders involvement, um, have, you know, structured curriculum that surrounds, um, you know, getting those opportunities to do what you want to do when you graduate, uh, but to also learn your culture, be able to go back on country and having that connection to language is just what's going to further empower young people to being great leaders one day.
0: Wow. So, yeah, fantastic. So to have much more government spending to ramp up schools in out in out in in more remote settings and rural and remote settings yeah. basically
2: well, it's easier to talk to yeah. people in remote i mean we're talking to you from quite a long way away it's has technology helped this since i mean it's really i guess covid times we've we're all getting a lot more used to doing things online have you noticed any kind of changes with education in in the last couple of
1: years I mean, not a whole lot, because there's also the underlying factor that you know, to do your homework and to have you know <laughs> access to technologies, you got to have it in the first place. And so, if you had a home where you don't have internet reception or a computer for that matter, um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of other issues that play into that as to why that wouldn't work. But yeah, I think you know, having the quality of teachers as well is another another factor that would help change things. Um, And I noticed that when I first got to Scotch, it's just how much of a difference that does make. Um, And, you know, they are there to also mentor you and what you want to do and where you want to be. And I think, you know, if there's a way in which we can get more teachers who are so, you know, involved with reconciliation, um, I think it would involve them, you know, going up and working with kids as well.
0: now, mate, I just wanted to touch on a pivot a little bit now and just get back to some of the um, work you're doing in in the field of medicine and health. And there's this Pilbara Faces project that you've been involved with. Could you tell us a bit about that? Because that sounds amazing.
1: Yeah. Um, so I sort of got introduced to that project in 2018 um, when I came back from Sydney after doing my undergraduate degree there. Um, It started off with me getting a bit homesick, um, being in New South Wales. Um, So came back, um, wanted to take a bit of time away from study, but also be in the health area um, and was just looking up online some interesting health projects in the Pilbara and this one caught my eye Um, in the sense that genetics is a very niche area, but it's also an exciting area in health in terms of uh, the genomics um, and technology that surrounds it going forward um so yeah i messaged gareth bainham who's my uh, boss and mentor today um and yeah the project uh sort of surrounds me being um, a community liaison to go back and capture 3d facial imagery uh, and the purposes of these 3d photos is that it enables doctors like gareth who's a geneticist by trade um, to diagnose children who living with brain genetic diseases um so the fun facts that we like to Um, say with this is that of rare genetic diseases and the children that suffer from rare genetic diseases in WA, you have about 60,000 there, give or take. Um, So that's enough to fill um, a whole stadium, like Optus Stadium um, or West Coast or Frio supporters. Um, So you you, you take that into consideration. Um, The other issue is if we wanted to do that realistically, we could probably only get half of them to the stadium just in terms of accessibility to... Um, get a diagnosis for people with rare genetic diseases for that accessibility to healthcare. Um, Aboriginal people, and we see this, this is more uh, profound um, with children that um, live with these rare and genetic diseases. Um, it's just so hard to be put in the right system to see the right doctors and see the right specialists uh, about what they're living with. And so, this is just a way in which we can fast track um, that process of families getting a diagnosis. Um, it's a way in which it can be non-invasive at times, so avoid skipping um, the blood test um, and just going straight to the camera. I know that every family or every mum and dad would prefer that option rather than a screaming child. So is that the main um,
2: advantage? Um, just it's yeah, invasive. Is there other. Can you do other ways of getting genetic information? DNA tests it has to be blood, or is it like swabs or?
1: Yeah. So that's the genomics parts in terms of reading, you know, the DNA and molecular structures of our body. Um, but there are subtle clues that you can see in these kids and what we call their phenotypes. So what they look like. So an example that we use is um, you can notice someone um, with the features of Down syndrome um, and that's the same for about four to 6,000 other diseases.
2: And feeding alcohol um, syndrome is another quite big one. Is it, is it just yeah. proportions of the face? Is that mainly what it looks like?
1: Yeah. So there's the proportions of the faces um, and you know, FASD in particular um, is often a barrier for these children in receiving the right diagnosis. In many cases, they are labelled as FASD. In many cases, they don't actually have the diagnosis and um, they've been misdiagnosed as a result. Um, They get the improper treatment and there's also a lot of burden on the mother and family who have been labelled as, Mm. um, you know, people who drink during their pregnancy. Um, So it works, I think, more in that line as well. Um, and in terms of accessibility, it, it offers a way in which we can diagnose children in the red sands RPR from the local clinic and saves cost on funding in terms of flying them down to Perth um, to see the specialist. So how's the data analysis?
2: Is it AI or is it done by individuals looking at the, the Yeah.
1: So we've got some really um, I mean, an amazing thing. Sometimes from... Like,
2: you have to actually plot points on it. Have you have you been part of that process or are you? Yeah.
1: So the old school way was you'd try to get a kid, any kid, you know, try to sit down on, on the mum's lap and try and measure parts of their face. It's just a near impossible task. Um, and that's what was the objective way of doing things previously. And often doctors would give up and just, you know, not get an actual recording, but just assume that they might have, you know, a slightly widened eye space, for example. Um, and so this offers a way in which we can take objective measurements um, and actually use data that's, um, you know, factual. Uh, rather than that subjective evidence. Um, and then in terms of AI, yeah, it does offer um an amazing uh, complex way in which we code these phenotypes or these terms or these features of these that these kids um have and these subtle facial clues. Um, and fancy algorithms have been generated these days where you can plug in, you know, um the kid might have those widened eyes as well as A, B, C, D, E, other features. Um, and it can suggest ways in which you can go forward in terms of, yep, that's definitely a diagnosis. Or how about, no, we'll, there's three that are likely, but we're still not sure, will go forward with a blood test. So it just helps streamline um, treatment pathways going forward.
2: So how good is the correlation going at the moment? Have you streamlined yeah, um, down to what kind of level of accuracy are you being able to determine these diseases based on these features?
1: Yeah, so it is a pretty um, accurate uh, way in terms of measurement and it's more accurate than going through that subjective way. Um, it's still in the process of being developed and um, in terms of the actual numbers, I'm not too sure. But one thing that I noticed when I first got there is that to have a way in which you compare, you can compare a subpopulation group to its population is that you need that reference range. Um, so previously um, for the data we were using, we were using um, African-American faces for Aboriginal faces. And that was the only thing that you. So could you use need more data. Available. So more data. We need about a thousand photos um, of Aboriginal faces to put together before we start to see some positive benefit from it. And at the moment, we're sitting around five hundred marks. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping while I'm up here, get get that done, um, and hopefully start to use these and implement these in clinics around around the Pilbara and Kimberley. So how does this program?
2: Is it part of? Is it a PhD you're doing, or is it um, just part of?
1: Yeah, so this is separate to, um, I don't actually do the research with the facial analysis, just <laughs> too complex for me, uh, but there's a team called um, uh, down at uh, Pliny Face, which is at, based in Curtin University, and we've got some really smart guys um, such as Richard Palmer uh, on that project um, who do all those amazing behind-the-scenes work, and I'm just out there um, doing the liaison. And I think it's an important role for me being Indigenous um, and in terms of data capture. Um you know, previously they didn't have a Indigenous person in this role, so it would take time to go out and facilitate the right communication or right, you know, discussion with the elders and yeah, whoever's the trusted, right person to talk to yeah. and building trust. And so, you know, I think I went in and got all my community done in sort of one or two afternoons um, compared to what would take a few weeks.
0: Can, actually, Yalalu, can I just, on a slightly side note, can I ask you how has... um that idea of trust and your role out there in, the, in your community being with COVID? Have you had, what, what's been your experience with COVID and the COVID vaccines um, up in the Pilbara?
1: Yeah. Um, again, a lot of it has to do with trust. Um, and I think there was just a, a time period um, that went on for far too long where there wasn't proper communication um, from federal level about the, uh, terms, you know, in terms of COVID, but also the vaccination program, and that wasn't accessible to community. And if you speak English as your second or third language, it is almost impossible to understand the information that is available to you. Um, so one project that I did do um, at the start of COVID uh, was doing translation pieces um, about how to stay safe in the community, about washing your hands regularly, keeping that 1.5, 2 metres distance from each other, um, and avoid travelling between communities, which is what a lot of Aboriginal people do. Um, and we saw in the space of 48 hours that um, through Facebook um, and connections that I had at home and just sharing these posters around that um, it was across four different communities translated into other language groups um, and just plastered it all around town and places like Tom Price. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of it does have to do with that. And the vaccination uptake recently, um, I spent my summer doing a few runs back home. Um, and, again, it's... It's amazing to see the difference of people who were, um, you know, unsure about getting the vaccine, and after having that discussion uh, with me and the RFDs doctors that were in town doing in the community doing them, um, how quickly it was to, you know, for so them you, to realize. Did not have to deal with any five G conspiracy something. theories or anything like that? <laughs> no, nothing like that. But <laughs> there was a lot five G. You know. But
0: there was definitely was there a bit of co- initial um, vaccine hesitancy, I guess but just basically because of is the main reason you said a lack of sort of translatable information about these things out. Yeah, right.
1: And it's all about communication and if you're not told the facts and you should, you know, it's almost uh, you know a bright in itself to know what you're going to be doing with your body in terms of health Um, and if you don't have that available, how can you make those decisions? Mm. Um, So a lot of the other things that I do inside of um, Pilper Faces and as well on the side of my studies um, is a program called Life Languages, in which I'm translating like complex medical terminology into uh, languages all across Australia.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing. So that is that going to be kind of like a website available to people, or you how 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 will that be, I guess, distributed? So I guess yeah, you're just building so up the
1: database now, are you? Um Our idea is like I've noticed it a lot with other communities, is that there's a lot of health projects and um, education and resource capacity building that are done across Australia, but a lot of them aren't sustainable and you often see them being used for a few months. And then, you know, technology these days and medicine these days is always changing. Um, so what we see is that they sort of get used for a period of time and then forgotten about and then left there and no one picks it up. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess it's just a way of putting that all together, but also breaking it down to its building blocks in terms of language. Um, so a lot of the things that we're doing is I mentioned before with phenotyping, um, there's an ontology called the human phenotype ontology terms, um, and this is used globally uh, with geneticists, and it's just a way of better improving communication between each other, uh, which offers ways of better diagnostics, but um, it also just, uh, you know, there's a mainstream pathway in terms of how you translate that back to your patients that you work with. Um, so a lot of these terms are used in patient letters, for example, where your okay. kid might have microcephaly. And I had a medical background before going into genetics, and I had no idea what that meant. Um, and so if you add on those you know, uh, issues of literacy in terms of um, people from community and not being able to understand that, um, it's just almost impossible to comprehend what's going on. Um, so we've just started doing that and translating it and collecting this through a, a mobile application. Um, so we've done about, um, about 300 terms in my local language. Um, and then we've had a lot of interest from other communities as well um, in other areas of health, so kidney health, type 2 diabetes. Um, and what we realise is through our international connections is that this is a problem globally. And so we picked up um, you know, partnerships uh, with people in Ghana, for example, uh, with the red genetic disease team. They're translating up to seven different languages in, in that country alone. Um, so, yeah, it's quite amazing to be a part of this and just hear these stories of, you know, this isn't just a problem in Australia, it's everywhere.
0: But, uh, I'm just wondering if you actually get get any sleep, mate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because like, it sounds like you've got a lot on the go right now.
1: I do. i got an amazing team that I work with and there's no way I'd be here without them.
0: Right, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> just incredible scope of stuff that you're doing. And, I mean, this whole... Our whole podcast, the range project, is really you know we yeah, get, what, do you, what do you do we, we get, get to interview playing music
2: people. or because I remember seeing you play the dig, I think in at an assembly or something here yeah, you still oh, man, many times yeah you you're doing anything yeah. with that still or do you don't have time
1: ah oh, it's like playing the dig is like learning to ride a bike once you pick it up you can you know you you know you remember it um uh, but I just reflecting on your question that I forgot to answer earlier in terms of you know what sort of a highlight of scotch as well. Um, I think, you know, going through and doing pipe band was pretty amazing and oh, yeah. going back at home and showing people, you know, this is me, this is what I'm doing and, I, you know, what's that is the first question. Second question is why you're wearing a skirt was was usually followed up. <laughs> um, but, yeah, what I do for fun, um, yeah, I love to get out bush and back to country and so having that opportunity to do a rural placement has just been, um, you know, great to do that and connect back with family and, um, you know, after not doing it for so long, it's just yeah, brings me. So a lot you're of getting happiness a really nice, chuck a line in the water. So what it's
0: you... a nice mix. You're getting a really nice balance at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's it. I think you know, having time off and just spending that day to yourself or uh, around family is what gives me that R and R to get through the next week. So yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. There's some beautiful spots around Broome. Have you you been up Cape of the week
1: yeah, been up Cape Levesque, Um, going up there this coming long weekend, which would be good fun. So yep. yeah, yeah, and later in the year. Yeah, uh, what are your? Uh, yeah, what, what are your favourite spots? Ah, oh, um, I like Manari, um, which is up sort of James That's... Price Point area, um, and it's got lots of good fishing up that way. But um, for the Cape Leveque trip, we're going up to um, a family friend's place who um, own a pearling lease up there um so, so, yeah Bay, is it not seeing Bay. arrow the, pearls arrow I, pearls I, yep <laughs> yeah cool um so yeah i'm hoping to get a bit of fishing in as well
2: oh it's fantastic fishing up there it's unbelievable every cast you'll get something
1: yeah exactly <laughs> <Pineapple laughs> fish <tablefish>. oysters <laughs> are amazing as well yeah well, we, got, um, we can
2: Bring a nice thick knife with you and uncover some of those rocks. Bring some chili sauce.
1: Yeah, you're gonna show me all your spots, then. Yeah. How to? Um, mate, we've
0: got about ten minutes to go, and um, we've got a, we've got a couple of quick fire questions. We always save at the end for our guests. And I've, uh, I've got another one I wanted to
2: add as well. Uh, yeah. Can okay. I jump so, in yeah. or do you, you got something? No, go for it. Um, I was going to ask you about. Your name, because I I know most, a lot of people I know, they probably just name their kids after some movie character or something, but where does your name come from?
1: Uh, I assume it's something more significant than that. It is, it is. Um, It's a place in the Great Sandy Desert um, where my grandfather was born Um, and it's a little hill um, and and near a community called Midijimae, which is one that he set up uh, and where my dad grew up. but Did yeah, he's pretty. Yeah, I met him. He he died when I was around four or five, so I didn't have that opportunity to grow up with him. But he was an amazing leader, um, back in the community. Um, and he was one of like the uh, people who got involved in the 1946 Biltmore strike for our family. Um, what was life like that for was,
2: him back in? So, what when when was he born? Oh,
1: we well, didn't have a uh, birth not, record not or anything like sure. No idea. Roughly, no, no, no so when,
2: when did he die and when what kind of what he like he was elderly i assume but what, um, he would have been was he there wasn't much in the way of uh white people out there at that at that time yeah in the stations so
1: he grew up um out with his um father who was they call him big sam and he was six foot four and I think that's where I got my height from because my dad's really small. But, um, yeah, he grew up out in the desert and walked in on station life um, and sort of was uh, involved with that at an early age. Um, But he also married my grandmother, who she remembers telling me, and she's still around today, and she tells me stories about when she walked out of the desert um, and she remembers seeing white people and white faces for the first time and camels. Wow. Um, So it's quite amazing, like, reflecting on the fact that, you know, that was her growing up versus (laughs) what I had. Back back in Perth, Um, it's just amazing to think in two generations' time that that, that's what's happened to Australia. Um, But yeah, my grandfather was hugely influential man. He's a big top law man, Um, and when he worked on the station, a lot of Aboriginal people back then, all of them, uh, were working for nothing but rations. So you know, paid for the hard work of sugar, tea, bit of flour, um, and that was all they got. And if they decided to leave the station, a lot of the times they'd be pulled back by police, beaten on the way home and told to go back to work. Um, So yeah, it was him and a lot of people like Clancy McKenna and uh, famous names like Dooley Binbin in the Pilbara area um, that set up on Australia's longest strike um, where all the Aboriginal people walked off um, pastoral stations at the same time um, and decided to strike. Um, And over those years, um, they spent time yandying for tin and put the tin in jam jars and they got paid by the jam jar. and they collected enough money to eventually buy back a few of the communities, and one of those communities was Warlong, which is where I'm from.
0: Wow, what a story!
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so it's, it's great to have that connection with my name, and yeah, mm. I just love thinking about him and yeah. wish he was still around.
0: Yeah, yeah. Proud history. Um, mm. Before we get to um, some of the final questions, what, I just want to ask what do you, what do you um, what do you want to achieve? You know, in the next five years, where and you know, uh, are you hopeful about in the next five years in in health and medicine that we can make some you know great strides, um, mm-hmm. uh, especially up 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 in supporting um, people in your community and surrounding communities.
1: Yeah, so I suppose my end goal in my lifetime is that I want to see like in Australia where there is no disparity in life expectancy between Indigenous people and our non-Indigenous counterparts, um, I think 10 years' difference in a developed country is just ridiculous by all means. Mm. Um, and to also see the gap widening in, in a lot of areas as well is, is, is quite concerning. Um, so addressing these short-term things um, is, is what I want to do, but if, in terms of realistics, um, it's probably going to take longer than that. Um, but if I can start a movement in which we're getting more people educated Um, people educated in the sense that um, they can walk away um, from university uh, or walk into employment um, that can better contribute um, to the issues that each community faces because every everywhere is different Um, but to do that I think it also stems from education Um, so you know involvement in organizing um, ways in which our people can access that um, is something that I'll always be interested in, um, and it's going to take more than me to change this in the Pilbara's. Um, and I'm not certainly not going to be able to do it alone. So, yeah, building up the capacity in that work, workforce is, is something that's so vital to do, um, and 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 again, it all starts from opportunity. So
0: yeah, yeah, oh that's awesome. Yeah, well that's 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 a big goal to have, and um, mm. yeah, we really before we get to our final questions, we really hope that 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 happens. You know sooner rather than later and you get all the successes on on your goals that you deserve mate because it's an amazing st- it's an amazing stuff that you're doing so we're, we're yeah we're just in awe actually <laughs> yeah thanks okay um three quick fire questions for you mate this is the end thank you so much Jobby. for spending some time with us and um here at the range thank project you. i'm sure this is going to go out to the whole scotch community and and we'll Australian be showing rod. it to lots of Scotch boys, so it'll be it'll be great. So thank you. Um, deserted island, favorite album or favorite band? What would it be? Oh,
1: this is such a hard one. Um, I'd have to probably go with the Johnny Cash classics.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> First CD I ever listened to from my granddad, so yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, okay. What book or books have had the most profound effect on you? Is there any book you would recommend uh,
1: Yeah, most? Um, I mean, I'm a lot. I'm very medical focused in terms of what I read um, at the moment. So there's one book in particular that cracks me up, which is called House of God, which is a fictional book about um, the lifestyle of a junior doctor and where I'm going. And it's a bit of a fun. But, yeah, I think... It's that, but um, in terms of you know leading up into Reconciliation Week, um, there's great books like When the West Was Lost and documentaries that you can read up on in terms of my culture and if you're interested, yep. Um, yep. I recommend that as well.
0: Awesome. What was the name of that one?
1: Sorry. How the West Was Lost. is a doco that you can probably find online these days.
0: Yeah, How the West um, it's Was got Lost. has My
1: Grandfather. Yeah, and it's a short doco about, about the strike.
0: Yeah. I was going to say I read an awesome um, – Stan Grant wrote an awesome essay in the quarterly essay which is just mm. a fan, fantastic um um read and and he called it i think it was some you know he called it the silent revolution and he was talking about how um many you know indigenous people are off doing all sorts of different things now than they never were 20 years ago and that's kind of happening somewhat under the radar of most australians you know they, they don't realize it and said it's you know it's a great great thing that a lot of progress is happening even though there's lots of challenges i don't know if you've read that yeah. one but that was a no I, mean, I
1: should do that but like yeah another comment about that is like i noticed when i first got you know into studying medicine there's a lot of publicity from my local shire and town about going away to study medicine and i just wish you know it was amazing to have that support from from your hometown don't get me wrong but you know i sort of wish i lived in a in a in a time and society where that wasn't such a big thing you know yeah 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 probably a normal, considered more of a normal thing but yeah
0: okay last one what habit have you formed in the last five years that has been most beneficial to you
1: oh hard one <laughs> um i think growing up i was quite stubborn um in the sense that you probably noticed this if you taught me back in the day Sam, but year 10 english, um, year think, 10 english. yeah you're excellent you're
0: excellent <laughs> i don't know whether i was the best teacher but you're
1: a great student <laughs> no you're one of my favorite english teachers i think of that mixed up. Oh, but um honor. thank you yeah <laughs> i think it was um a lot in terms of and i still you know i don't sort of realize that this past two years going into a degree where you know there's amazing learning opportunities all the time and you know you are tested on your knowledge throughout the day by consultants. Um, and there's times where you might not know it, or um, things that might get you frustrated. Um, in terms of you know you think you've done a really good job, but you can improve in these aspects. And I think it's just taking time to listen um, in a manner that you can then also self reflect on later um, throughout the day and perhaps over a month. Um, and so yeah, I think that's something that I never did as a kid, and I was just always around the place um and something i really realize now is that self-reflection is just so important so yeah. just take that time throughout the day whether it's 10 to 20 minutes or over a weekend to absorb what you've done and your actions throughout the weeks and how you can be a better you the next week
0: well that is an awesome way to finish mate um, we, we are so so grateful again for you coming on our show um, you, you're obviously a man of great range and there's just such an awesome bunch of things you're doing and with such a great moral, you know, um, cause and foundation to it all. And that's just fantastic. And we really appreciate your time and and we wish you all the best for your future and all the work you're doing now. And um and we'll thank you so you much. Down here.
1: Cheers, thank you so much. And big shout out to the Scotch community that's you know helped me go on this path that I am now and I wouldn't be here without you. So thank you guys so much.
0: No worries. No, thank you. Thanks, Elliot. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Range Project. Proudly supported by Scotch Parents, Scotch Teaching and Learning and the Old Scotch Collegians Association.